Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from. Welcome to Farfetched Fables. This is show number 25. We're a quarter of the way to 100 shows. And in honour of that milestone, we have the first part of a wonderful story for you today, as well as a great flash piece to finish it off. So sit back, relax, pick up that drink at your elbow, open your ears, let's have some fun. Our first story today is the first of a two-parter called The Master Miller's Tale by Ian R. MacLeod. Ian has been selling and writing professionally for more than 20 years. His critically acclaimed novels have been widely translated, whilst his short stories have been reprinted in many best-of anthologies. He has twice won the World Fantasy Award and the Sidewise Award for Alternate History, as well as the Arthur C. Clarke and John W. Campbell Memorial Awards. As well as using the same alternate history background of his two novels, The Light Ages and The House of Storms, he cites Keith Roberts and Thomas Hardy as his two major references in writing The Master Miller's Tale. He lives with two dogs and one wife in the river town of Budley. You can learn more by following the link on our Triple F website. The story is narrated for you today by Colin Clews, a very talented narrator from the UK. Colin is a musician and a writer who loves music, reading and movies. Although he's British, he grew up in Africa, and he still hasn't managed to do anything cooler than that, despite studying philosophy and learning to play electric guitar. So without any further ado, here is The Master Miller's Tale, Part 1, by Ian R. MacLeod. There are only ruins left now on Burlish Hill, a rough circle of stones. The track which once curved up from the village of Stagsby in the valley below is little more than an indentation in the grass, and the sails of the mill which once turned there are forgotten. Time has moved on, and lives have moved with it. Only the wind remains. Once the Westovers were millers, 
They belonged to their mill as much as it belonged to them, and Burlish Hill was so strongly associated with their trade that the words mill and hill grew blurred in the local dialect until the two became the same. Hill was mill, and mill was hill, and one or other of the Westovers, either father or son, was in charge of those turning sails, and that was all the people of Stagsby, and all the workers in the surrounding farms and smallholdings cared to know. The mill itself, with its four sides of sloped, slatted wood, weather-bleached and limed until they were almost paler than its sails, was of the type known as a post-mill. Its upper body, shoulders, middle and skirts, turned about a central pivot from a squat, stone lower floor to meet whichever wind prevailed. There was a tower mill at Alford, and there were overshot mills at Low and Screenby, but Burlish Mill, on Burlish Hill, had long served its purpose. You might get better rates further afield, but balance against that had to be the extra journey time, and the tolls on the roads, and the fact that this was Stagsby, and the Westovers had been millers here for as long as anyone could remember. Generation on generation, the Westovers re-cemented this relationship by marrying the daughters of the farmers who drove their carts up Burlish Hill, whilst any spare Westovers took to labouring some of the many thousands of acres which the mill surveyed. The Westovers were pale-faced men with sandy hair, plump arms and close-set eyes, which, in their near translucence, seemed to have absorbed something of the sky of their hilltop home. They went bald early, people joked that the winds had blown away their hair, and worked hard, and characteristically saved their breath and said little, and saved their energies for their work. Although it took him most of his life to know it, Nathan Westover was the last of the master millers on Burlish Hill. Growing up, he never imagined anything could change. The endless grinding, mumbling sound of the mill in motion was always there, deep within his bones. He was set to watch a pulley, which was threatening to slip. "'See how it sits, and that band of metal keeps it in place?' his mother, who often saw to the lesser workings of the mill, explained. "'It's been doing that for longer than I or your father can remember. Now it's getting near the end of its life.' The pulley turned, the flower hissed, the windmill rumbled, and this small roller spun on in a slightly stuttering way. And we can't stop the mill from working when we're this busy just to get it fixed. So we need someone to keep watch, well, more than simply watch, over it. I want you to sing to that roller to help keep this pulley turning and in place. Do you understand? Nathan nodded, for the windmill was always chanting its spells from somewhere down in its deep-throated, many-rumbling voice and now his mother took up a small part of the song in her own soft voice, her lips shaping the phrases of a machine vocabulary, and he joined in, and the roller and the pulley's entire mechanism revolved more easily. Soon Nathan was performing more and more of these duties. He even learned how to sing some of the larger spells which kept the mill turning, and then grew strong enough to lift a full sack of grain. He worked the winches, dampened the grist, swept the chutes, oiled the workings, he loved the elegant way in which the mill always rebalanced itself through weights and lengths, numbers and quantities. Fifteen men to dig a pit thus wide down at school in the village meant nothing to him, but he solved problems which had anything to do with grain, flour, or especially the wind, in his dreams. Sometimes there were visits from the rotund men who represented the county branch of the miller's guild. On these occasions everything about the mill had to be just so, the books up to date, the upper floors brushed and the lower ones waxed and the sails washed, and all the ironwork shiny black as new boots. But Nathan soon learned that these men liked the mill to be chocked, braked, and disengaged, brought to a total stop. To them it was a dead thing within a frozen sky, 
and he began to feel the same contempt for his so-called guildmasters which any self-respecting miller felt. On the mill's third floor, above the account books with their pots of green and red ink, and set back in a barred recess, leaned a three-volume thesaurus of spells. One quiet day at the end of the spring rush, when the sails ticked and turned themselves in slow, easy sweeps, his father lifted them down and blew off a coating of the same pale dust which, no matter how often things were swept and aired, soon settled on everything within the mill. This, son, he cleared his throat. Well, you already know what these are. One day these books will be yours. In a way, I suppose, they already are. The yellowed pages rippled and snickered. Just like the mill itself, they didn't seem capable of remaining entirely still, and were inscribed with the same phonetic code, which Nathan saw stamped, carved, or engraved on its beams, spars, and mechanisms. There were diagrams, handwritten annotations. Darker smudges and creases lay where a particularly useful spell had been thumbed many times. Through the mill's hazy light, Nathan breathed it all in. Here were those first phrases his mother had taught him when he tended that pulley and the longer, more complex melodies which would keep back those four apocalyptic demons of the milling industry, which were weevils, woodworm, fire, and rats. As always with things pertaining to the mill, Nathan felt that he was rediscovering something he already knew. There were slack times and there were busy times. Late August, when the farmers were anxious to get their summer wheat ground and bagged, and when the weather was often cloudless and still, was one of the worst. It was on such late, hot, airless days, with the land spread trembling and brown to every cloudless horizon, and the mill whispering and creaking in dry gasps, that the wind-cellar sometimes came to Burlish Hill. Nathan's father would already be standing and waiting, his arms folded and his fists bunched as he watched the small, solitary figure emerge from the faded shimmer of the valley. The wind-cellar was small and dark and gauntly pale, he wore creaking boots, and was wrapped in a cloak of a shade of grey almost as thunderous as that of the sack which he carried over his thin shoulders, within which he bore his collection of winds. So this'll be the next one, eh? He peered forward to study Nathan with eyes which didn't seem to blink, and Nathan found himself frozen and speechless until his father's hand drew him away. Just stick to business, Winseller, shall we? It was plain that his father didn't particularly like this man. After all, every miller worth his salt prided himself on making the best of every kind of weather, come storm or calm, glut or shortage. Still, as he unshouldered his sack and tipped out a spill of frayed knots, and especially on such a hot and hopeless day as this, it was impossible not to want to lean forwards, not to want to breathe and feel and touch. Here, try this one. Spidery fingers rummaged within the hissing, whispering pile to extract the grey strands of what looked... Nathan thought, exactly like the kind of dirty sheep's wool you saw snagged and fluttering on a bare hedge on the darkest of winter days. That's a new fresh wind from the east. Cut through this summer fog clean as a whistle, sharp as a lemon and twice as sweet. Delicate, yes, but good and strong as well. Turn these sails as easy as ninepence. Already Nathan could taste the wind, feel it writhing and alive. Slowly, reluctantly, his father took the strand in his own hands, and the wind-seller's mouth twitched into something which was neither a smile or a grin. And this one, now this will really get things going. Tail end of a storm, tail end of night, tail end of winter. 
can really feel a bite of frost in there, can't she? Of course, she's a bit capricious, but she's strong as well, and cool and fresh. It was nothing but some bits of old willow bark, torn loose in a storm and dampened by trembling puddles, but already the windmill's sails gave a yearning creak. Nathan's father might grumble and shake his head, but the haggling which followed all of this conspicuous advertisement was always disappointingly brief. They all knew, had known, since before the wind-seller's shape had first untwisted itself from the haze of the valley, that, strange things though they were, the knotted breath of forgotten days, he would have to buy some of these winds. Although no one else believed them, Master Miller swore they could taste the flavour of the particular wind from which any batch of flour had been turned. The wind prevails from the east on Burlish Hill, unrolling with a tang of salt and sea brightness from the blustery North Sea. But no wind is ever the same, and every moment of every day in which it blows is different. And setting the mill to just the right angle to take it was, to Nathan's mind, the greatest skill a master miller possessed. Even as you sang to your mill and anchored it down, it responded and took up the ever-changing moods of the wind in her sails. But the feelings and flavours which came from the wind-seller's winds were different again. On dead dry afternoons, when the sky was as hard as beaten pewter, Nathan's father would finally give up whatever make-weight task he was performing, and grumblingly go to unlock the lean-to at the mill's back where he kept the wind-seller's winds. The things looked as ragged now as they had when they fell from the wind-seller's sack, nothing more than dangling bits of old sea-rope, the tangled vines of some dried-up autumn, the tattered remains of long-forgotten washing. But each was knotted, using complex magics, and what else were they to do on a day such as this? Already writhing and snapping around them, a grey presence, half-felt, half-seen, and straining to be released, was the long-for presence of some kind of wind. Up in the creaking stillness of the main millstone floor, and with a shine in his eyes which spoke somehow of expectation and defeat, his father would break apart the knot with his big miller's hands, and, in a shouting rush, the wind it contained would be released. Instantly, like the opening of an invisible door, the atmosphere within the mill was transformed. Beams creaked in the changed air, and the sails swayed, inching at first as the main axle bit the brake wheel, and the brake wheel bore down against the wallower, which transported the wind's gathering breath down through all the levels of the mill. The further sky, the whole spreading world, might remain trapped in the same airless day, but the dry grass on Burlish Hill shifted and shivered, and the mills signalled to every other hilltop that, at least here, here on this of all days, there was enough wind to turn its sails. The winds themselves were often awkward and capricious things, unseasonably hot and dry, awkwardly damp and grey. They seemed to come, in that they came from anywhere at all, from points of the compass which lay beyond north and south, east or west, even as they began gladly heaving the contents of all the waiting sacks into the chutes, the atmosphere within the mill on those days remained strange. Looking out through the turning sails, Nathan half expected to see changed horizons, to find the world retilted in some odd and awkward way. Lying in his bunk on the still nights afterwards when the winds had blown themselves out, he pictured the wind-seller, wandering the grey countrysides of some land of perpetual autumn, furtively gathering and knotting the lost pickings of a storm with those strange, agile fingers, and muttering as he did so his spells over rags and twigs. 
The other children at the school down in the village, the sons and daughters of the farmers, carpenters, labourers, shopkeepers, who would soon take up or marry into the same trade, had always been an ordinary lot. Perhaps Fiona Smith should have stood out more, as Nathan often reflected afterwards, but she was mostly just one of the girls who happened to sit near the back of class and seemed, in her languorous demeanour, to be on the verge of some unspecified act of bad behaviour which she could never quite summon the energy to perform. Nevertheless, she could hold her own in a fight and throw an accurate enough stone, at least for a girl. If he'd bothered to think about it, Nathan would have also known that Fiona Smith lived at Stagsby Hall, a structure far bigger and more set apart than any other in the village, which had a lake beside it, which flashed to the changing sky when you looked down at it from Burlish Hill. But he envied no one the size of their homes, not when he had all of Lincolnshire spread beneath him and lived in a creaking, turning, breathing mill. He was surprised at the fuss his parents made when an invitation came for the Westovers and seemingly every other person in Stagsby to attend a party to celebrate Fiona Smith's fourteenth birthday, and at the fussy clothes they found to wear. As they walked on the appointed afternoon towards the open gates of Stagsby Hall, he resented the chafe of his own new collar, the pinch of the boots, and the waste of a decent southerly wind. It was somewhat interesting, Nathan might have grudgingly admitted. To see such an impressive residence at close hand instead of looking at it from above. Lawns spread green and huge from its many golden windows towards a dark spread of woods, and that lake, which even down here reflected the near cloudless sky in its blue gaze. There were indecently underdressed statues, and there were pathways which meandered among them with a will of their own. Of greater importance, though, to Nathan and most of the other villagers, was the food. There was so much of it. There were jellies and sausages. Cheeses and trifles, cakes and roast meats. There were lurid cordials, sweet wines, and varieties of ales. Sticky fingered, crusty faced, the younger children took quarrelling turns to pin the tail on a blackboard donkey, and those of Nathan's age soon lost their superiority and joined in, whilst the adults clustered in equal excitement around the beer tent. There was also a real donkey, saddled and beribboned, and ready to be ridden. But the donkey whinnied and galloped as people attempted to catch it. Kicking over a food-laden table and sending a mass of trifles, jellies, and cakes sliding to the grass in a glistening heap, the adults laughed and the children whooped as the donkey careered off towards the trees, watched by the stiff-faced men and women in tight black suits, whom Nathan had divined by now were the servants of Stagsby Hall. The afternoon, for the villagers at least, passed in a timeless, happy whirl. Much beer and wine was drunk, and the children's livid cordials seemed equally intoxicating. Trees were climbed, many by those old enough to know better. Stones and a few of the silver trays were skimmed across the lake. Then yet more food was borne out from the house in the shape of an almost impossibly large and many-tiered cake. The huge creation was set down in the shade of one of the largest of the oaks which circled the lawns. Nodding, nudging, murmuring, the villagers clustered around it. The thing was ornamented with scrolls and flowers, pillared like a cathedral, then spired with fourteen candles. Each of which the servants now solemnly lit. With an even deeper sigh than that which had signalled the lighting, the cake passed through the crowd as Fiona Smith emerged into the space which had formed before it. Nathan hadn't consciously noticed her presence before that moment. Now that he had, though, he was immensely struck by it. He and many of his classmates were already taller and stronger than the parents whose guilds they would soon be joining. Some were already pairing off and. Walking the lane together, as the local phrase went, and even Nathan had noticed that some of the girls were no longer merely girls. 
but none of them had ever looked anything remotely like Fiona Smith did today. Although the dress she wore was similar in style to those many of the other women were wearing, it was cut from a substance which made it hard to divine its exact colour, such was its shimmer and blaze. Her thick red hair, which Nathan had previously dimly remembered as tied back in a ponytail, fell loose around her shoulders, and also possessed a fiery glow. It was as if an entirely different Fiona Smith had suddenly emerged before this cake, and the candle flames seemed to flare, as though drawn by an invisible wind, even before she had puffed out her cheeks. Then she blew, and all but one of them flattened and died, and the embers sent up thirteen trails of smoke. Smiling, she reached forward as if to pinch out the last remaining flame, but as she raised her hand from it, the flame still flickered there, held like a blazing needle between her finger and thumb, and then, with a click of her fingers, it was gone. The entire oak tree gave a shudder at the spell's aftermath, and a few dry leaves and flakes of bark drifted down, some settling on the cake. The villagers were already wandering back across the lawn, muttering and shaking their heads as the servants began to slice the object up into spongy yellow slices. They were unimpressed by such unwanted displays of guild magic, and no one was feeling particularly hungry. Without understanding quite how it happened, Nathan found that he and Fiona Smith were standing alone beside the remains of the cake. "'You're from up there, aren't you?' she nodded through the boughs towards the mill. "'Bet you'd rather be there now, eh, with the sails turning, instead of down here watching a good day go to waste?' Although it was something he wouldn't have readily admitted, Nathan found himself nodding. "'It was clever,' he said. "'What you did with that cake?' She laughed. "'All those faces, the way they were staring. I felt I had to do something or I'd explode. Tell you what, why don't we go and have a look at your mill?' Nathan shifted his feet. "'I'm not sure. My father doesn't like strangers hanging around working machinery, and it's your birthday, and—' "'I suppose you're right.' "'Tell you what, there's some of my stuff I can show you instead.' Dumbly Nathan followed Fiona Smith up towards the many-windowed house, and then through a studded door. The air inside was close and warm, and there were more rooms than he could count, or anyone could possibly want to live in, although most of the furniture was covered in sheets. It was as if the whole place had been trapped in a hot, dusty snowfall. "'Here.' Fiona creaked open a set of double doors. The room beyond had a high blue ceiling— "'decorated with cherubs and many-pointed stars. "'This!' "'She shook out a huge, crackling coffin of packaging "'which lay scattered amid many other things on the floor. "'This is from Father. "'Ridiculous, isn't it?' "'A sprawled china corpse stared up at them with dead glass eyes. "'Nathan had always thought dolls ridiculous, "'though this one was big and impressive. "'At least I think it's from him. "'His handwriting's terrible, and I can't read the note. "'Your father's not here?' Not a chance. He'll be in London at one of his clubs. London? It's just another place, you know. Shrugging, Fiona aimed a kick at the doll. And he's decided I can't stay here at school either, or even in Stagsby. In fact, I'm sure he'd have decided that long ago if he'd remembered. That's why everyone's here today, and why I'm wearing this stupid dress. It's to remind you of who I'm supposed to be before I get dragged to some ridiculous academy for so-called young ladies. Fiona crossed the room's considerable space towards the largest of all the sheeted objects, which, as she tugged at its dusty coverings, revealed itself to be an enormous bed. Enameled birds fluttered up from its silken turrets as if struggling to join the room's starry sky. Nathan had seen smaller houses, 
This used to be Mother's bedroom. I'd come and just talk to her in here when she was ill from trying to have a son. Of course it didn't work. So now my father's stuck with a girl for an heir, unless he goes and gets married again, which he says will be when hell freezes. Will all of this end up as yours? Fiona gazed around, hands on hips. I know what you're thinking, but my father says we're in debt up to the eyeballs. I'm sure you Westovers have far more money than we Smiths with that mill of yours. My grandfather, now, he was a clever one, had a real business mind. He was a proper master smithy. He was high up in the guild, but he still knew how to work a forge. He used to show me things. How to stoke a furnace, the best spells for the strongest iron. And that trick with the flame. Fiona looked at Nathan and smiled. Her eyes were a cool blue-green. He'd never felt such a giddy sense of sharing, not even when he was working hard at the mill. I'll show you his old room she murmured. Up wide, white marble stairways, past more sheeted furniture and shuttered windows, the spaces narrowed. Nathan caught glimpses through the windows of the lake, the lawns, Burlish Hill, and then the lake again as they climbed a corkscrew of stairs. Cramped and stuffed with books, papers, cabinets, the attic they finally reached was quite unlike the great rooms below. Fiona struggled with a shutter, flinging sunlight in a narrow blaze. Nathan squinted, blinked and gave a volcanic sneeze. She laughed. You're even dustier than this room. Standing in this pillar of light, Nathan saw that he was, indeed, surrounded by a nebulous floating haze. It's not dust, he muttered. It was a sore point. The children at school often joked about his powdery aura. It's flour. I know. Something fluttered inside his chest as she reached forward to ruffle his hair, and more of the haze blurred around him. But you're a master miller, or you will be. It's part of who you are. Now look. After swiping a space clear on a sunlit table, Fiona creaked open the spines of books which were far bigger and stranger in their language than the mill's thesaurus of spells. The same warm fingers which he could still feel tingling across his scalp now travelled amid the symbols and diagrams. Guilds kept their secrets, and he knew she shouldn't be showing him these things, but nevertheless he was drawn. This is how you temper iron. This is an annealing spell, of which there are many. The whisper of pages. And here, these are the names for fire and flames. Some of them, anyway. But there's always something different. Every time you charge a furnace, put a spark to a fire, light a candle, even. Nathan nodded. All of this was strange to him, but he understood enough to realise that flames were like the wind to Fiona Smith, and never stayed the same. Not that my father's interested. He likes to joke about how he got through his grandmaster's exams just because of the family name. And I'm a woman, so there's no way I can become a smithy. She grew quiet for a moment, the sunlight streaming in copper glints across her hair as she gazed down at the vortex of flame which filled the page. What'll you do instead? I don't know. She looked up at him, fists balled on the table, her face ablaze. That's the frustrating thing, Nathan. These of all times... All the old spells, you know, the stupid traditions, the mumbling and the superstitions and the charms and the antique ways of working, all of that's on the way out. Modern spells aren't about traditional craftsmen, not when you can mine the magic right out of the ground. That's what they're doing now, in places up north like Red House and Bracebridge. They're drawing it out of the solid earth, almost like they extract coal or salt or tar or saltpeter. Nathan nodded. He knew such things as mere facts, but he'd never heard anyone speak about them, or indeed many other things, with such passion. 
I'm lucky. That's what my grandfather used to say. I'm lucky to be living in this time. She shook her head and chuckled. The future's all around us, just like the world you must be able to see from up on your hill. And this, now this. She pushed aside the book and took down a large and complex-looking mechanism from a shelf. He made this himself as his apprentice piece. It took up most of the table, and consisted of a variety of ceramic marbles set upon a complex-looking arrangement of arms and gears, all widely spaced around a larger and even brighter central orb, which might have been made of silver or gold or some yet more dazzling metal. It's an orrery, a model of the universe itself. These are the planets, and this is the sun. These tiny beads are the major stars, see? As she leaned forward, their blaze was reddened and brightened by the fall of her hair. This is where we are, Nathan. You and I and everyone else. Even the hot and top heathens. This is our planet, and it's called Earth. Nathan watched as her hands, her hair, fluttered from light to dark amid all this frail and beautiful machinery, and his thoughts, and his lungs, and his heart, and his stomach fluttered with them. Although he had no great care for matters of philosophy, he couldn't help feeling that he was witnessing something exotic and forbidden in this strangely godlike view of the universe which Fiona Smith was describing. But it was thrilling as well. Now watch. Leaning down close to the table, afloat in sunlight, she puffed her cheeks and blew just as she had blown at her birthday cake. But now, smoothly, silently, the planets began to turn. You try. She made a space, and Nathan shuffled close. Then, as conscious of the warmth of Fiona's presence beside him as he was of the blaze of the sun, he bent down and blew. Is that really how it works? She laughed. You of all people, Nathan, up on that hill should understand. Silently, and seemingly with a will of its own, in gleam and flash of planets and their wide-flung shadows, the orrery continued to spin. Nathan watched, willing the moment to continue, willing it never to stop, but slowly, Finally, it did. It felt as if some part of his head was still spinning as, dazed, he helped Fiona close the shutters and followed her back down the stairways and along the corridors of her huge house. Everything, the sheeted furniture, the hot air, seemed changed. Outside, even the sun was lower and redder and it threw strange long shadows as it blazed across the lawn. The world, Nathan thought for one giddy moment, really has turned. A space of desk near the back of the class at the village school, lay empty when Nathan and his classmates returned to school, although there was nothing particularly remarkable in that. Soon they were all leaving, drawn into the lives and trades and responsibilities for which they had always been destined, and Fiona Smith's birthday party, if it was remembered at all, was remembered mostly for the drink and the food. The windmill up on Burlish Hill turned, and the seasons turned with it. More and more Nathan was in charge, and he sang to the mill the more complex spells which his father's voice could no longer carry. The only recreation he consciously took was in the choir at church, opening his lungs to release the sweet husky tenor which had developed with the stubble on his cheeks, looking up at the peeling saints and stars. It seemed to him that singing to God the Elder and singing to the mill were much the same thing. Instead of calling in at the pub afterwards, or lingering on the green to play football, he hurried straight back up Burlish Hill, scanning the horizon as he did so. He could always tell exactly how well the mill was. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Grinding and the type of grain which was being worked merely from the turn of its sails. But there was a day as he climbed up the hill when something seemed inexplicably wrong. Certainly nothing as serious as her major gear slipping, but the sweep of the sails didn't quite match the sweet feel of the air. He broke into a run, calling to his mother as he climbed up through the stairs and ladders inside the mill. The main sacking floor was engulfed in a grey storm, with flour everywhere and more and more of it sifting down the chutes. Hunched within these clouds, gasping and racking breaths, Nathan's father was a weary ghost. Feeble though he was, the miller resisted Nathan's and his mother's attempts to bear him out into the clear air. He kept muttering that a miller never leaves his mill, and struggled to see the rest of the sacks before the wind gave, even though the batch was already ruined. Finally, though, they persuaded him to take to his bed, which lay on a higher floor of the mill, and he lay there for several days, half-conscious and half-delirious, calling out spells to his machine which still creaked and turned between periodic, agonising bouts of coughing. As poor luck would have it, the winds then fell away. It grew hot as well. The skies seemed to slam themselves shut. Much more now for the sake of his father than for the mill itself, Nathan longed for a breeze. He searched for the hidden key to the lean-to, and he found it easily in a tin of nails, just the sort of place he'd never before have thought to look. The few knots left inside the small close space hung like dried-up bats on their iron hooks, and a part of Nathan felt that he had never seen anything so weathered and useless, and a part of him already felt the strange, joyous surge of the winds which each clever knot contained. There were no spells in the miller's thesaurus to tell him how to unbind a trapped wind, nor the sounds that he should make as he did it, but doing so came to him easily as laughing and crying as he stood on the millstone floor. The air changed in a clamour of groans, the mill's sails creaked and bit and turned. At last there was work to be done, and Nathan got on with doing it with a happier heart. He knew without climbing the ladders that his father's breathing would be easier now that the mill was working properly all around him again. Although he was too exhausted to make use of it, Nathan released another wind at twilight purely for the glory of feeling the pull of and the draught of it through the mill's leaky slats and floors. 
More than usually, this one lived up to the windseller's tales of bright spring mornings and the shift of grass over cloud-chased hills. When Nathan finally climbed the ladders to see his father, his mother, who had sat all day beside him, was smiling through her tears. He took the old man's hand and felt its hot lightness, and the calluses which years of handling sacks and winches had formed, and the smooth, soft gritting of flour which coated the miller's every flesh, and he smiled, and he cried as well. They sat through the old man's last night together, breathing the moods of the mill, watching the turn of the stars through the hissing swoop of its sails. Nathan's mother went to live in an old warehouse beside the dunes at Donanook, which had once stored southern hops before the channels had silted up. He visited her there on saints' days, taking the early milk wagon and walking the last miles across the salt flats. Although she was wheezy herself now, and easily grew tired, she seemed happy enough there, spending her days talking of brighter, breezier hours and better harvest to the widows of other millers. In those days, the Guild of Millers still took care of its own, but of course there were no master millers there. Nathan knew, had long known, that a miller never left his mill. But he was a master miller now, even if the ceremony of his induction which he'd envisaged beneath the golden roof of some great guild chapel had dwindled to a form signed in triplicate, and he gloried in that fact. Heading back from Donna Nook towards Burlish Hill in darkness, he would find his mill waiting for him, ticking, creaking, sighing in its impatience to take hold of the breeze. Often he sang to it out loud, even when no spells were needed. It was only when he was with other people, he sometimes reflected, that he ever felt alone. The mill was Nathan's now, and that made up for most things, even though there was less and less time for the choir, for all the spells in those whispering books, and every creak and mood and scent and flavour, every seed of corn and every grain of flour it produced, shaped his life. When he rested at all, he was merely to taste the breeze as he stood on top of Burlish Hill. From there, on the clearest of days, you really could see all of Lincolnshire, and gaze down at the huddled roofs of Stagsby, and the rippling wind-flash of the lake which lay beside the closed and shuttered windows of Stagsby Hall. Everyone remarked in Nathan Westover's energy in the seasons that followed. Millers were never known to take an easy bargain, but few drove them as hard as he did. Farmers and grain dealers might have gone elsewhere, but he was a miller who worked to whatever deadline you set him, and never let any of the sacks spoil. On nights of full moon you could look up and see the sails still turning. It seemed as if he never slept, and then he was to be seen early next morning at the grain markets at Alford and Luth, making deals to buy and sell flour on his own account, driving more and more those notoriously hard bargains, clapping backs and shaking hands in ways which earned more money, but also respect. These were good times across the rich farmlands of Lincolnshire. The big cities of the Midlands were spreading, sucking in labour under their blanket of smoke, and that labour, along with the growing middle classes who drew their profit from it, and the higher guildsmen who speculated in shares, bonds and leases, needed to be fed. Born in on endless carts, and then increasingly drawn along rails by machines, powered by the same heat and steam which drove those burgeoning industries, came supplies of every kind, not least of which was flour for cakes biscuits and bread. Sometimes, although it seemed less often than in the times of Nathan's childhood, the wind-cellar still came to Burlish Hill. In rare, hot, windless times the shimmer of something, at first it could have been nothing more than a mirage twirl of dust, would emerge from the valley, and Nathan wondered as he watched where else this man travelled, 
and what he did on other less closed-in days. He always bought a few examples of the wind-seller's produce, though in truth he barely needed them, for he made sure that he made efficient use of all the winds which the sky carried to him, and had little need for such old-fashioned methods of enchantment. The world was changing, just as Fiona Smith had once said it would. Magic was being pumped out of the ground beneath northern cities. You could buy oils and new bearings which were infused with it, which was commonly known as ether, and which spilled dark hues in daylight and shone spectrally in the dark. Nathan was happy enough to use the stuff, at least if it was for the good of his trade. He knew, or surmised, that the hill itself had once been the source of power which drove the mill's spells, but perhaps that had been wearing thin, and what else could you do but breathe and work through the seasons which time brought to you, and sing, and wait, and smile, and hope for the best? Few people ever command anything in this world in the way that Nathan Westover then commanded his mill. He even enjoyed the tasks which most millers hated, and loved filling in the reds and greens of profit and loss on the coldest of nights, when the sails hung heavy with ice. Numbers had their own climates, their own magics. Even as the inks froze and his fingers burned with the cold, they whispered to him of how far he had come. He was building up savings in a bank account in Luth, which he was then reusing, reinvesting, but still always accumulating, and it sometimes seemed as he stood outside in the bitter air and the night sparkled with motes of frost that the dark shape of the big house lay twinkled once more with lights. I'm sure you Westovers have more money than we Smiths with that mill of yours. Even if it hadn't been true then, it was almost certainly true now, and the rumour was that Grand Mistress Fiona Smith would soon be back at her home in Stanksby Hall. Nathan waited. After all, London and all those faraway cities were merely places, just like Stanksby, and he was too accustomed to the capriciousness of the Lincolnshire weather to be anything other than patient. He even bought himself a suit, which he never wore after the tailor's fitting, although he often took it out to admire its cut and shake off its grey coating of dust. There was an even harder edge to the bargains Nathan drove for the following spring's rye and wheat, an even brisker turn to his mill sails. Then came another summer, and the larks twirled and sang over the ripening corn, and the skies cleared to a blue so deep and changeless that it scarcely seemed blue at all. Then the weather flattened, and there was no rain, and the heat shrank the lake beside Stagsby Hall, and the corn dried and the dogs panted, and even the turning of the mill on Burlish Hill finally slowed, until there came an afternoon when everything in the world seemed to have stopped, including Burlish Mill. Nathan was looking out from the mill's top level when he saw a dark shape emerging from the heat-trembled stillness of the valley below. Certainly not a farmer, for the corn was dying, and none of them had anything to bring. Skidding down ropes and ladders, he stood squinting and rubbing the sweat from his eyes as he willed the shape to resolve into a dusty silhouette. The heat was playing tricks. The body wouldn't stay still, and the movement was too swift. Through the thick, flat air, Nathan caught the brisk rattle of hooves. He waited. A rider on a gleaming, sweating chestnut horse came up, dismounted, and walked quickly over to him. Female, tall and well-dressed, she took off her riding hat and shook out her red hair. Smiling at his surprise, Grandmistress Fiona Smith took a step closer, and Nathan saw that, whatever else was different about her, the fiery blue-green gleam in her eyes was unchanged. Then her gaze moved up to the sails above him, and her smile widened into a wonder which Nathan had only ever seen on the faces of fellow millers. Still smiling, still looking up, she began to walk around the brown summit of Burlish Hill. Nathan followed. Fiona Smith was wearing dark riding clothes, 
boots, a jacket, a long skirt, but they were new and sharply cut and trimmed with shining edges of silk. This was nothing like the same girl who'd once stood before the candles of that many-tiered cake. Not that he hadn't dreamed, not that he hadn't dared to wonder, but looking at this woman, watching the way she moved, he marvelled at how she'd changed and grown to become something quite unlike the person he'd imagined, and yet was still recognisably Fiona Smith. All those ridiculous thoughts, all those years, and yet here, real beyond any sense of reality, she was. Is this where you keep the winds? Despite the heat of the day, the air around the stone lean-to had a different edge. You know about the wind cellar? I've made a small study of your trade. Fiona shivered. Her eyes flashed. Why don't you use one now? Her gaze changed shade as she looked at him. But that's the old way, isn't it? No self-respecting miller likes to admit that they can't manage on nature's winds alone. And such winds cost money. That's what I admire about you, Nathan Westover. You're passionate, but you're practical as well. You should hear people talk. Everyone. She turned beneath the still sails, spreading her arms, encompassing every horizon. From here to here, they all know exactly who you are. But probably not by name. The Miller of Burlish Hill, she laughed. But that's what you are, isn't it? Strange for a man of such substance to have his life founded on a mere breath of air. Nathan laughed as well, and felt something loosening like a free cog inside him. He'd never thought of it like that before, but she was right. I'd always hoped, he said, I'd always hoped you'd come here. And here I am. She gave what he took to be a curtsy. And I have a proposal to put to you, Nathan. So why don't you show me inside your mill? Nathan would have been speechless, but the mill was the one topic about which he was always capable of talking and pride soon took over from his shock at Fiona's presence. He could even push aside the thought of how he must appear, with his arms bare and his dungarees still gritty from the dust of a long morning's cleaning, and probably reeking of sweat and linseed oil as well. At least all his hard work meant that his mill was in near-perfect condition. Even if Fiona Smith had been one of the guild inspectors who'd used to come in his father's time, he doubted if she'd been able to find a single fault. Pristine, perched as ever on the edge of turning movement, the mill welcomed them through streams of sunlight into its hot, fragrant floors. "'You and I,' she murmured, as she climbed up the last ladder and took his arm to help herself over the lip. "'I always used to look up at this mill and wonder if I couldn't become part of what it does.' She was so close to him now that he could feel the quickness of her breath, see how the changed brownness of her skin consisted of the merging of constellations of freckles. Then they both hunched deliciously close together beside the topmost window, looking down and out at all the world as it was revealed from the combined height of Burlish Hill and Burlish Mill. Nathan could feel the warm tickle of Fiona's hair. The world was haze today, but everything was clear in his head as on the sharpest day as he pointed out the directions of the winds. All Lincolnshire lay before him, and he could feel the soft pressures of her body as she leaned closer. Despite these distractions, he found that talking to her was easy as chanting the simplest spell. When most people looked out from Burlish Hill, they strained for the name of this or that town, a glimpse of the sea or the tower of Lincoln Cathedral. They saw buildings, places, lives, distances to be travelled. But what Nathan saw and felt was the pull of the sky, the ever-changing moods of the air. And Fiona Smith understood. And she even understood in fact, already knew about the demands which different types of grain placed upon a mill, 
how the millstone had to be geared and levelled differently according to the grist and the weather, and all the complex processes of sifting and sieving and then of proving and damping, about which even the farmers who produced the stuff and the bakers who baked it barely cared. She could have been born to be the wife of a master miller. Then, as they leaned close, she talked to him of her years away from Stagsby. The school she had been sent to by her father had been just as dreary as she had feared, but she travelled afterwards, fleeing England and heading south and south, towards the warm and dusty lands. Looking out, Nathan could smell the air, feel the spice heat of the lives of those darker-skinned people who, as she put it, slept when they felt like sleeping and danced when they wanted to dance. He'd never cared much for the idea of travel, for the winds of the world always came to him, but now he understood. The mill was turned fully south, facing across the brown weave of England towards other, more distant shores. Then, although he hadn't spoken a single word of a spell, the whole great machine shook, and its gears moved, and the sails swooped in a single vast turn. It was a sign. Helping Fiona back down the levels, lifting her fully in his arms, he felt her amazing warmth and lightness. She laughed, and her breathing quickened, and she pressed herself closer still, leaning her whole soft pressure of her body against him as they swayed together on the main millstone floor. She planted a long, hot kiss on his lips. The mill was entirely at rest again when they stumbled outside, but Nathan's head was spinning. It's almost a shame to be back here in England. Fiona sighed, fanning her neck as she pushed back her hair. I hate London, with its traffic, fog and smell. But here, here, being here, you know, I'd almost forgotten. I feel so at home here in Lincolnshire. And you and I, Nathan, we could really be partners, equals. Let me show you. Reaching into the pocket of her skirt, she took out something small and round, a coin, a bead, or perhaps merely a pebble but it had a black ether glow. Crouching down, she tossed it like a dice into the brittle brown grass, and the blackness spread. Nathan was reminded of the tumble of the wind-seller's sack of storms, but this was different again, and far more powerful. Grids of fire leapt across the blackness. Dimming even the blaze of the sun, they threw sparks in Fiona's hair. When she looked up at him, that same fire was in her eyes. This, she said, is a map. A plan. It goes far further than you can see from even this hill. Here are the great cities, the ports and towns and industries, of all of England. See, Nathan, see how they blaze? Even you up here must use fire. But think of what fire really means. Fire means power. The same power you feel when your body grows hot as you move those arms to work all those clever winches. But magnified, multiplied, almost beyond measure. Then imagine all that power that heat controlled. The brightness amid the dark mirror which lay spread before them increased. It spilled and moved and pulsed along quivering veins. Nathan felt like God himself looking down on this different world, for he saw every movement and detail as close and intricate as the fine auburn down on Fiona's bared neck as she leaned beside him. There were shimmers of steam, furnace mouths, endless sliding arms of metal. He tasted coal and smoke. The world is changing, Nathan, and you and I, we, must change with it. Forget about the old ways, the old songs, the old spells. Already, see here, the arm of the railway is reaching as far as Spalding. Soon it will be here, and here, and here as well. Fire dripped from her fingers, spilling and spreading between the embers of the towns. 
the engines, the rails will draw everything closer together. People, their trades, their lives. Nathan blinked. He saw the tiny machines made larger and enormously powerful through clever intricacies of iron. But why was she telling him this? He strained to understand. You're saying... I'm saying we could work together, down there. We're living at the start of a new age. Forget about the guilds and all the old restrictions. We can make ourselves its kings and queens. As soon as the money is released, straight after the marriage, before if I get my way, I'll give the order to start digging the steam mill's foundations. For all that Nathan Westover was a man of business, the conversation was taking a surprising turn. But what about here? What about this mill? I know, I know. It's a wonderful creation. Of course it will be months before we can get the steam mill fully commissioned. Even after that, I'm not suggesting we shut this windmill down immediately. Far from it. I'm sure we'll need it for years to take up the slack and deal with the seasonal rush. But this isn't some dream, Nathan. This isn't about sentiment or imagination. My fiancé is a senior master of the Savants Guild. He has shares in almost all the major rail companies, and they're developing the latest, most powerful magics of steam and iron. Of course he's old, but he's still... What do you mean? Are you saying you're engaged? Where else do you think I'm getting the money to finance this project? Nathan stood up. For all the sun's blaze, the darkness of the map seemed to have spread. Then he started to laugh, taking in great, racking gulps of air. And you thought... And you thought I would give this up? My whole life? Come to work down there? He raised a trembling hand. But what did you think, Nathan? She was standing beside him again now, and far too close. He had to turn away. All these years, all these bloody years, I've hoped... Hoped what, Nathan? There was a pause. The light gathered. He sensed a change in her breath. I wish... I do wish that life could be different, but that isn't how it works, Nathan. And even if it did, even if it did, can you imagine how much money the sort of project I'm talking about needs? It's more than you could ever dream of, wealthy though I'm sure you think you are. My husband will get my name and what little of my companionship he still needs when I'm in the city, and I'll get his money and the freedom to live here. It's a fair enough exchange. But as for the rest, as for the rest, it doesn't mean... I like you, Nathan. I truly do. I felt what we both felt inside that mill. And if we were together, if we were business partners, and you were the manager of my mill, who knows? Her hand was upon his shoulder, kneading the flesh, moving towards his neck. Who knows? He span around in a blurring rage. And you imagined that you could have me as your employee, working on some infernal machine? You might as well expect me to go to hell. Hell, is it? Stumbling back, she stooped to snatch up the stone. Its spell swirled around her in a dark vortex of flame in the moment before the map faded. You think that would be hell? She grabbed her mare's reins, mounted, and drew the creature about in a wild and angry lunge. It reared, baring its teeth around the bridle. There's only one infernal machine, Nathan Westover, she shouted, and we're both on it. And so's everyone else in this world. With a dig of her heels, Grand Mistress Fiona Smith galloped off down Burlish Hill. Ooh, it's getting really exciting. 
When I was listening to this for the first time, I had to stop it at about this point to attend a meeting. And all I could think about all through that meeting was, what happens next? I got to turn it on as soon as I walked out of the building, but you need to tune in next week to find out. So, let's move on to our second story for today. It's a quirky little piece called Princesses by Jeremy Sim. Jeremy is probably the only Singaporean-American science fiction and fantasy writer currently living in Berlin, Germany. If he's not the only one, please let him know at jeremysim.com or on Twitter, handle on the Triple F website. This story, Princesses, originally appeared in Flash Fiction Online in 2013. It's read for you today by Bob Rodis, a terrifically talented narrator who currently resides in the Chicago area with his wife, daughter and a cat who's just waiting for the chance to take over the house. You can read more about him on the Triple F website and you can also go take a listen to what he can do at wordtomouthstudios.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Princesses by Jeremy Sim. To save a princess, you will need three things. A number two pencil, a graphing calculator, an ally, preferably fearless. You will need an ally because princesses are notoriously difficult to rescue alone. Your ally should be a family member, a mother or sister who fed you and tied your shoes when the ambit of your life whisked you through blown dandelions and video games. The tying of shoes isn't important. The feeding is. Bread, water, and the quiet feast of stories, bedtime or otherwise, without which you would not exist. If you lack such an ally, stop reading now and go find one. To rescue a princess, you must be absolutely chock full of stories. You must gorge yourself on them. For the calculator, the only acceptable models are TI-83 through TI-103 from Texas Instruments. Your Sharps and your Casios will not be recognized here. Not the SL-9140 you bought from the big air-conditioned Tokyo hands in Sunjuku-shi, your starch school collar cutting into your Adam's apple that summer day like a sweaty torque. Not the E-1000 from the Indian Mama at the copy shop next to the refectory. TI-83 through TI-103. The pencil can be any pencil as long as it is a number two and will shade. You will identify your princess in one of several ways. The swish of hair against her neck. The smell, clean and royal, of her deodorant. The way she infiltrates your thoughts, masked and silent, like a wide-eyed ninja. Remember that princesses are elusive and brilliant, but also quite deadly. You should know this from the stories fed to you by your ally. Be cognizant of the knife-wielding Rapunzel, the needle-flinging Scheherazade. Do not trust first impressions in this matter. Someday you may be wise and dependable and discerning enough to know a princess by sight. Not now. You are too fresh, too fearful. You are too easily swayed by suggestion, and your new friends in this land are nothing like the old. There is only one way to accurately identify your princess, and that is to sacrifice your ally. Surprised? Try not to show it. Lead her to the stone altar. Don't worry, she will trust you, and carefully insert a blade in her throat. Repeat as necessary. Sacrifices are not clean affairs. Lean your full weight against your bedroom door when your mother comes tiptoeing near midnight, bearing cantaloupe. Pretend not to hear when your sister calls across the house, frantic, in Korean or Farsi. Hurt them. Insult them. Wear headphones. Leave without explanation. Remember, your goal is to inflict death. Don't worry too much about her well-being. 
If you have chosen your ally well, the magic will work to revive her in the end. You should understand this instinctively from your knowledge of stories. Sacrifices are guaranteed to have value. Don't lose focus. At this stage, the work of finding a princess is yours alone. You must navigate this kingdom without a map, scuff your toes on endless highways, and find somewhere in a deadly throng a princess in genuine need of aid. You may use a calculator for this portion. When you have finally found your princess, make note of these things. Whether or not her castle has a moat, whether or not her castle has a high tower, her name. The name she gives you is almost certainly false. Still, certainty of falsehood is more useful than you might think. If there is a moat, you will need to find yourself a thin, hollow reed suitable for breathing. Look to the side of the pavement the next time you go to the lake to clear your thoughts. You may be smoking a painful cigarette or just fogging the winter air with your breath, Russian scarf around your neck. Crouch down and poke through the soil to cleave the reed from its roots. If there are spires or towers, prepare yourself for a climb. Don't think about the fall right now. In fact, never think about the fall. There is no need to discover if her castle has guard dogs. Princesses always have guard dogs. Go to the outer gate at the stroke of midnight, alone but armed with all the tools and knowledge you have prepared. Feel the moonlight model your face and neck. Smell the woody gravity in the air. Remember the stories you read, the games you mastered, the friends you lost and left behind in your home country. Remember who you are, for once you are inside, it is very easy to forget. With your pencil and a piece of paper, very carefully sketch out a map of your surroundings. Like Hansel and Gretel, you'll need to be able to find your way back again in the end. Make it crystal clear. Remember that when you return, you may be dizzy from blood loss, intoxication, or starvation. Fold the paper into a neat square and bury it somewhere safe. This is the difficult part, the part for which there is no guide. To succeed, you will have to draw upon the secret powers that your ally imparted to you in your youth. If you can spare a breath in the battle ahead, mutter to your ally a thanks or an apology. You will become wounded. You will run out of breath in the poison labyrinth beneath the battlements. You will fight with every ounce of strength, drink from every magic goblet, and sneak shivering through the palisade of nightmares. You will need to solve the puzzle to every room, know the trick to every mechanism. And when you reach the end of the gauntlet, scale the tower with the moon shining on your face, you must be aware that here, in America, in the real world, sometimes your princess is in another castle. Ready? Then resharpen your pencil, resheath your calculator, and vault that wall. Well, I'm still smiling. How about you? It is, unfortunately, the end of today's show. I've really enjoyed this one. I hope you did too. Please remember that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. You all know what that means. And don't forget to tell anyone who will listen to you about us and how amazing our stories are. My thanks go to all of our authors and narrators for their generosity with material and time. We all do this voluntarily, just for the love of the stories. If you're feeling generous, please feel free to donate a little something. The buttons are easy to find on our website and everything goes into the pot to keep the District of Wonders going. In the meantime, take it easy. Keep smiling. Remember to take things less seriously once in a while. We all need a touch of the ridiculous now and again. Bye now.
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 